Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. So hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, Working on Wellbeing. Today, we're live from Atlanta, Georgia, my hometown, and some might say uh, the moral compass of the country. At least I would say that. But, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, and I am so fortunate because I get to have these really insightful conversations with some of the most fascinating people. And today, we have raised the bar with Dr. Vivian Greentree. I am so delighted, Vivian, you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for um, reaching out, Anita. It's, it's finally some some time um, we can spend one-on-one, so I'm really excited. Me too. Now, I- I'm going to share with, with everybody a little bit about you, but if I were to share everything, it would take the entire episode. So I'm going to give the condensed version for everybody who's listening, but Vivian's currently the president of Fiserv Cares Foundation an amazing organization. And I think she also holds the title at Fiserv as head of corporate global corporate citizenship. So you think about the foundation and corporate citizenship coming together, and you're going to see right away where I think we're going to take our conversation today. But I think if I read between the lines, Vivian, it, it means that you're overseeing all of Fiserv's strategies for philanthropy and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and community engagement, and employee engagement. So those, the idea of the foundation and corporate citizenship coming together, I applaud Fiserv. I think that's an incredible strategy. But I don't want to underplay all your awards and accolades. So I only picked a couple of them. So Vivian was the city of Alexandria's, one of their 40 under 40. (laughs) That was a while ago. I was going to say that was, I'm, I'm, you know, you got a long way till it's 40 over 40. Um, <laughs> and then the Washington Business Journal, this is my favorite maybe because I come from a military family too, but a veteran who means business. That's what the Washington Business Journal called her. And then here in Atlanta, the Atlanta Business Chronicle named you Corporate Citizen of the Year. And so when I think about your commitment to people, your your service attitude. I can't help but share with everybody that you're a Navy veteran and a military spouse and co-founder of the Blue Star Families. And I think, Vivian, that probably still the largest national military family organization, right, in the country? Yes, ma'am. Amazing organization. And for those of you who don't know, there was an acquisition, Fiserv of First Data, but Vivian was part of the first data world. And if you think about her military background and everything she was doing, you're not going to be surprised that she was heading the military and veterans affairs for First Data, if I got that right. But that's not the big part. The big part is under your leadership, First Data was number one for like the number one employer for mili- military times. And military times, right? They're best for that. <laughs> and, and it wasn't like one year or two years. It was like five years or something crazy. So I am out of breath, but you, you are remarkable. So thank you so much for today. And thank you, most importantly, for you and your family and your service to our country. I appreciate it. My family appreciates it. So thanks for being here. No, I mean, um, we keep showing up at the same meeting. So, you know, like attracts like. I, so I know our headspace is in the same, you know, kind of area of using where we are to expand opportunities for everyone. And I think that's where, you know, everything you just talked about, that's really where that comes from is the desire to see success, any any determination or language or definition of success has to include service and service towards others, I think, is the piece. And that's whether 
you know, corporate, community, nonprofit, military, uh, public. And so I, you know, that's why we keep showing up at the same meetings. I think we could do an entire podcast just on a new definition of civic leadership, but maybe I'll leave that for another time and maybe we can restructure that here in Atlanta together because it's a soapbox of mine and yours as well. But I, you know, I was thinking about, we could take our conversation a bunch of different ways, but I think I want to start a little different just because I think your story is so intriguing. And I often share my story that my life changed when I went to work for McDonald's and that manager leaned in around me and taught me financial literacy My family had been experiencing homelessness, so he actually helped us in many ways beyond just teaching me what's on a check and what's a banking account. And that was a wow moment for me, Vivian, at a time where my life changed and that trajectory changed. And he put me in many ways on a different path. And I just wonder, have you ever had one of those wow moments where you think, gosh, this this changed me? in some ways. And I thought if, if you could, maybe let's start there with a little bit of that. Yeah, I, you know, a wow moment probably certainly was, you know, maybe joining the Navy or, or my, my Navy experience, although, you know, kind of true to form, you don't really appreciate it uh, while you're doing it. But, you know, my military experience, both in uniform and then as a military spouse, um, as my my husband just retired last year after serving for 20 years, you know, enriched and enlarged enlarged, uh, my life (laughs) in ways that, you know, they really are unfathomable because, you know, you stretch yourself to you think you can't go another inch and, and then you somehow find it in yourself, you know, resiliency you know, I learned that resiliency is learned um, and it's a gained competence and that, you know, in the Navy, they say, you know, boats are safe in the Harbor, but that's, that's not why we build boats, you know? And, and I know that I have to steal that Vivian, that's right. Right? They're safe there, but that, that's not really why we have them. And you can't gain competence in easy waters. That's not how you have an experienced, you know, sailor. I know that, I learned very quickly, you know, showing up without knowing much and controlling much that you can always show up with attitude, effort, and kindness. And that definitely carried forward, you know, and that humbleness to to know that you don't know everything, but you can show up early, not on time, but early. um, And you can show up with with effort and a good attitude, and that will get you so far. And I think that idea of kindness, we don't often talk about it, right? But I think that for me, that's that's the wow moment because even in my case, they lean, that guy leaned in because he was kind, right? So leading with love and leaning in around kindness, I think is a, g- a great lesson for all of us in that moment. And you don't, you know, in the military, it might not seem like your <laughs> first second is kind. A bit of a juxtaposition I, there, right? <laughs> the, the, but your teammates are. And I think, you know, it, it's like the recognition that you're only as strong as your weakest link. And that is a lesson, you know, too, that I think is hand in hand with kindness, even though it might not look like kindness at the time from your, um, from your military leadership. But then, you know, and definitely a wow is that, from my time in the military and and then afterwards as a military advocate or military family member is that, you know, diversity is a fact. The world is diverse. Our country is diverse. Two people in a room together is diversity, but that inclusion is the choice. And when you choose inclusion, whether it's a government entity, a community, an organization, a company, um, a school, you know, when you choose inclusion and set up processes, policies, partnerships, structures that allow for inclusion to celebrate, recognize differences, celebrate differences, value them, that's where you get inclusion. And I think the military does that well. Uh, I, it may be a mistaken perception, but maybe not. I have the perception that the military is way ahead of us when it comes to DEI. And it's something that happens, but in many ways, the challenges, are they the same or they're different in the military? Is my, is my perception wrong? There's certainly, I mean, two things came, always come to mind when we think of, you know, meritocracy, transparency, and pay, you know, pay equity, certainly the military is ahead. There's pay scales and everybody knows what they're going to make. And we make, you know, equal based on gender. And then you leave the military and all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, what happened? (laughs) Right. Like, did I work a different hour or was my hour less? 
You had a different chromosome. <laughs> and then segregation, you know, military DOD schools were set up specifically because they saw um, what segregation was happening and um, wanted to provide us an equitable access to education to their military families. And so there's a lot ahead. I think, you know, there's still a lot of work that can be done on the military side, but I certainly think there's a lot of um, lessons to be learned that could be carried forward into the corporate sector, you know, and beyond um, in how we, uh, you know, achieve high performing teams and operational effectiveness. And part of that is that psychological trust, you know, it's creating inclusion, not just having diversity, because they do have high performing teams that are doing very, you know, very specific operations and missions, and they couldn't do it if they didn't depend on each other, you know, with their very lives. Yeah. But but a lot of that you can attribute to having greater purpose, right? So I I think often about purpose-driven organizations, and if we could just embrace what that really means, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by your Navy history and the idea that purpose drives success and purpose drives high performance and culture and diversity and all of the things that we struggle with. And at some point I think, well, gosh, this is pretty simple. Companies just need a purpose, right? But I know how difficult that is. So maybe share a little bit about Fiserv because it is a company with purpose. And And in many ways, we don't get to see it because you kind of operate inside, right? And they're like the banks and all of your customers, we get to see that. But there's a model within a model. And Fiserv does some pretty incredible things. So maybe share with us a bit about Fiserv so that everybody could learn also about your organization and why I think it's so special. Sure. And I, you know, I love your conversation on purpose too. So let's, we'll always come back to that. So Fiserv is a global leader in payments and and financial technology, really, you know, the original FinTech overlaying financial services um, on technology. And we, we really run the gamut from digital banking solutions, card processing, network services, payments, e-commerce, or long story short, um, we're really commerce at the point of thought because it's also mobile banking. It's it's online, omni-channel. It's if you're in your car in this last year, if it was on your phone, um, if you're you know if you're at Chick Fil A or Panera, um, we're behind uh, the systems that people use to um, engage in commerce. And then we have our point of sale devices, our Clover devices that really help small um, small and medium sized businesses across the globe. So when you think about purpose, sometimes your purpose is less obvious because your purpose is channeled out through your network, whether that's that Clover network you just talked about or your larger enterprise network. So what what is the purpose overall of FastServe and how does that really manifest itself in terms of values and even go-to-market propositions? Right. So we we are one of the biggest and we'd like to think best fintechs um, on the planet. And we we have a special commitment and awareness knowing that we're kind of the it's it's sports season, right? It's always sports season. It's football season. Yes. So it's football season. It's your round, Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> it, right. If it um, but we are the um let's pick football season since um since it's football season, we are the football field on which, you know, all the teams play our networks, our partnerships with financial institutions and footprint globally with small businesses creates just an incredible network of which um, we can leverage for, you know, to move money in a way that truly moves the world forward. And we know that we are definitely technology driven, but ultimately people powered. And we want to ensure our purpose is built into our mission for financial inclusion as we build back better from COVID and the systems that we've disrupted over this past year and are creating new systems for that they're inherently more inclusive because of the way that we're we're building them back. So for example, with our back to business community investment of $50 million into small minority owned businesses. So amazing, by the way. Thank you. And um, you know, it, it's it's a group effort. There's companies and you know partnering public private partnerships nonprofit, um, academic institutions coming together to say, we'll all be better off if we're all better off. And we know that Main Street does drive Wall Street and that the success of mom and pop shops are going to you know, help us get through COVID together and then come back 
come back more strongly because everybody now has, or more people have equitable access to resources and networks. And because we know that your, you know, your net worth is really your network. And we are the most extensive network globally in the fintech space. And we have a commitment to leveraging that space in place to create economic opportunity. Vivian, I always feel like I have to keep up with you because every other word is this amazing soundbite about, you know, like your net worth is your network. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So, um, you know, if I look or sound like a deer in the headlights, then it's because so much of you say is so simple and yet it's just so effective. So thank you for that. And salary finance is a fintech. And in many ways, you know, we stand on the shoulders of organizations like Pfizer. So I'm totally grateful for, for that opportunity. And you certainly have led the way in that. But I think one of the other ways that, that you've led is with Pfizer Cares, the foundation. So I think about, yes, there's this whole for-purpose side, this stakeholder capitalism side that Pfizer lives every day. But there's also this empathetic community uplift social responsibility side that Fiserv Cares Foundation lives. And so maybe talk a bit about what is the foundation? Is it the same purpose or is it a, a different purpose? And how does it all come together? So when we think of corp, you know, corporate culture as a strategy, and so it really pulls the thread from being an employer of choice or just total employer value, brand proposition, whether you're recruiting people to work with you, people to work for you, uh, people to be be your clients or community partners that really create the ecosystem so that we can all thrive together. That's really what drives our thought process on how to source, recruit, retain the best talent, and then and um, stay with me because I know I know the question you asked, and I know I. I oh, I'm good. <laughs> I love your pathways. <laughs> you and I are both the same. Who knows where that trajectory is going to take us? It's lovely. <laughs> but but you you know even from the questions that or from the conversations we've had before, you know that culture of belonging. That's where you derive the benefits of innovation and and trust. So that people can be vulnerable to do their best work because they know that, you know, if they're wrong, they have, they can be, they can bring themselves to their whole selves to work. They can be wrong and be safe and have the trust of their teams. And then the kind of the thread on that to get back to the question you asked is then how to engage, how do you engage that, that workforce, that very purpose-driven, you know, diverse workforce. And it is through that community investment, volunteerism, the ability to pursue both profit and purpose and not, you know, be made to choose between them. Um, and so that's where we get, you know, where we really think how we engage with communities. It's in the areas of entrepreneurship is certainly one, social innovation, things that where we can overlay our subject matter expertise and create opportunity, access, or exposure for groups that might be marginalized or underserved and might not see themselves either reflected in current, you know, fintech offerings or, you know, chambers of commerce and just really to use our space in place to expand the table for others so that they can come and and help make decisions and and innovate um, because ultimately that makes us, you know, better at what we do. And then the community piece is that it's more than return on investment, it's return on inclusion. It's and when you talk about even, you know, sustainability, there's environmental sustainability, but then there's, you know, sustainability of talent pipelines or, you know, just workforce development. And that's that's another kind of S in sustainability that I think that more companies are are seeing value to to create economic return that is way past just your revenue. Yeah. Somehow I think that the S is more important. I'll don't send letters and you know, complaints of everybody who's an environmentalist. But I think in many ways, if you get the S, the social part right, then the environmental and the governance part will come from there. So for me, the S is always sort of a, a capitalized letter in the in the ESG acronym. Of course, maybe just because I'm an anthropologist too. So I, I admit my bias, definitely not an unconscious bias, very conscious and intentional around the S and the people, right? <laughs> But you have that from D.C. Speaking of uh, sports, I can't believe you and I are having a conversation and we're going to talk about baseball and football all in the same conversation. That was like so uncharacteristic. But what were you doing in D.C.? Uh, Pfizer 
it was our first time sponsoring the congressional baseball game. And um, as part of that sponsorship, and I should know who won, who won the game. (laughs) (laughs) The American people won. There we go. Excellent political answer. (laughs) Three small businesses really won because, you know, um, we overlaid our support of that um, and use that opportunity for that wonderful audience of, you know, bipartisanship in our nation's capital, you know, baseball game to give out, uh, to launch our back to business campaign in the DMV. And so in DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and gave, and we launched the um, grant application for our $10,000 small um, business grants to small minority owned businesses by giving three of them out to three very deserving small businesses in Maryland and uh, Virginia and DC. So you know, everybody won. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad they won too. And, and I remember when I I, I first saw this and saw the grant piece and I I thought about the fact that it was Mrs. Joe's petite eats and it had uh, the Los Amigos Latin market and knowing how, what a beating food services has taken over the last 18 months. uh, And I, I met with the national restaurant association uh, this week and knowing how how tough that's been, you know, kudos to you and Pfizer for actually starting to uplift that because to your point, the backbone needs to be there, but to also reinfor- reinforce minority-owned businesses that are in a struggling vertical industry right now, I think is so important just to acknowledge that. So thanks for doing that. Yeah. And and many of them have said, you know, the the capital, your net, you know, your your net worth is your is your network. The the capital was, you know, life changing because it was make or break. But it's been the investment in the community investment partners that we've created with cha- and their access to chambers and and coaching and our technology and um, you know resources and information that we've been able to connect them to in advance, you know, um, as they've joined the Pfizer family. That has been a lot has that is what has allowed them to thrive. And so that's kind of the the you know excitement is that right, it was survival. A lot of it was last year was let's just survive. And now it really is at that growth for now, how can we thrive? And then when you talk about sustainability of Main Street, what that means, um, and we know that you know, minority-owned businesses were disproportionately affected by COVID for a variety of reasons. And we have where we have the ability to leverage our space in place, have given the grants, have connected them to community investment partners, even with our financial institution partners, um, helped with PPP, looked at our partnerships with minority deposit institutions. And and that's what we do every day anyway for clients. So that's why I think, you know, we have that special commitment um, to use our space in place. I think the best part of what you do is not just capital, but it's the relationship capital that sits behind all of it that I think contributes to that sustainability. Because as you said, you tap into your whole network, you're tapping into the chambers, you're tapping into all of these pieces and really creating, again, safe space for vulnerability. So whether it's your employees who are vulnerable and you've created that space or your small business ecosystem and you're creating a space. In so many ways, Fiserv is shoring up people in many, many different times, uh, kinds of capital, people capital, technology capital, capital itself, financial capital, social capital. Social capital for the anthropologists. For the anthropologists, yes. The conscious capitalists. So, you know, thanks for, for leading that. It strikes me that I have heard you say uh, at some place where we have been that organizations are powered by people and that of everything, human capital management is really the key for engaging a society. Is that really your thinking at Pfizer more broadly or is that Vivian's thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Am I allowed to ask that question? (laughs) I think it's Pfizer, but I'm, I'm, you know. I'd love for it to be you as well. <laughs> it definitely are, you know, our, our CHO, everyone from, you know, our CHRO, certainly our um, CEO, Frank Bizignano has, he, you know, he's definitely said we, it's an obligation given our size and scope 
But it's also an opportunity, given our size and scope, to have an impact that way out, even, you know, outnumbers even the monetary impact that we can have. And just for me personally, I do think, you know, I'm very lucky to have the position that I have because I feel responsibility commiserate to the opportunities I've been given to really use my space and place to expand opportunity for others. Because I know, you know, you said earlier, standing on the shoulders of giants and I'm able to be where I am because someone took a chance on me. I, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily seen myself at a Fortune 500 company when I was in high school didn't, you know, didn't know that the, the S, my SEC was the Southeastern Conference, not the Security Exchange Commission. I didn't know either one of them, Vivian. So you're right. right. <laughs> and certainly coming from, you know, being in the Navy and working on military transition, you know, no, when, when, a, when a veteran transitions successfully and gets and you know, kind of transitions into that, the private sector after service and, and finds their way in, Um, to the corporate world, you really want to just turn around immediately and help the next person to kind of ease that transition. And you could use that, you know, for women or minorities or any group that really has, has seen themselves on the outside to be part of the corporate structure and to say, wow, like we really can make a difference, make a profit and, and have impact that outlasts, you know, anything that we do right now you just kind of want to share that with everyone. And I think definitely Fiserv um, from our, you know, top down enterprise really looks at the positions that they have as a way to create financial inclusion, because we know inherently that the systems will be better the more that people can participate in them. Frank is an incredible leader. And, you know, the, the empathy that he casts in his shadow is pretty compelling. So I do want to come back to your military experience, but we haven't really given the listeners an opportunity to hear your journey. And, and I forget because I know you well, but I know you you said, you know, you were in high school and I know that's here in Georgia, but you had a journey that kind of took you out of Georgia and then brought you back to Tucker, I think, which is also where you started, right? So you want to, you want to share some of that? Maybe. <laughs> yes, um, I do. I actually live about 14 miles <laughs> From my from my parents um, right now, which yes, for for several years, for about twenty years, uh, we were traveling, uh, care of the Navy. Um, so I uh, went to high school in in Georgia um, in Tucker, and then uh, actually went to the University of Georgia uh, on the Hope Scholarship, which I do think also you know plays into my kind of worldview on you know you kind of earn your space and place by opening opportunities for others because that has been what's kind of gotten me to where where I am now. And so I went to the University of Georgia, joined the Navy, married a Navy guy, and then and then we followed each other. And then he retired last year after 20 years. And um, so we were able to, for the first time in 20 years, decide where to live without the help of a Navy detailer. (laughs) And we, of course, chose um, Atlanta because it, you know, Georgia has so much to offer, right? The industries here, I mean, FinTech is here, but we also have agriculture. We have film. Um, It's, you know, the, I think the the Metro Atlanta Chamber would say people come for the uh, culture and stay for the hustle or come for the hustle and stay for the culture. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure which way it is, but either way sounds really good. I'm sure the mayor will like be calling you and I'm going, Vivian Anita, please get it straight. (laughs) But it is amazing. What I do know is it's not hot Atlanta or whatever that is, hot Atlanta. I have figured that part out, but I, I'm really fascinated by your Navy history because you skip over that a bit. But why did you choose that? I'm going to admit, I, I, my, my father was in the military, but I don't have very many of my friends who were, you know, especially female friends who said, yes, I'm going to go join the Navy in particular. So how did that come about? Um, so my family comes from public servants, either I was going to be a police officer <laughs> Or or a sailor, it's gonna be one or the other. <laughs> the pants were cuter with those buttons on them as a sailor. Is that it? <laughs> the outfit, I still the outfit. Yeah, and I thought if I joined the Navy, um, it would get me out of Georgia, which is why it's so funny. That, so funny yeah. that you're back then. <laughs> by choice, by choice, <laughs> by choice, and that I mean that um, really, I we've we've lived several places, and wanting to come back to Georgia, I think you know, families here. I, there's a lot, you know, finally having our children in one school that they know they're going to, they're going to finish in and then really digging in and saying like in our post-service lives, 
this is where we would like to, you know, create a state and a city where other military families and, and really anybody can come here um, and either start a business or, you know, continue on in their careers, start their families and um, make it a better, better place for them. You just talked about military folks transitioning and it can be really great. What was that like for you? Was that a hard transition? I, I mean, I know a little bit about the Blue Star families, so you could talk about that too, but uh, maybe somebody else. I can only imagine that it was a tough transition for you. I mean, that that is why, um, that's definitely one of the impetuses for um, helping to, to co-founding Blue Star Families. I was very lucky that when I was transitioning off active duty, uh, my husband was still active duty. So I still had health care. You know, we had an income. And um, even though we had, you know, we were in the middle of start, you know, starting our own family, but there were, I had that safety net there and a lot of, you know, veterans don't. So I'm very cognizant of that. I think the thing for me was the loss of kind of self or, or purpose. I had always been part of the, you know, I'd just been able to be part of this organization that was bigger than myself. I had a sense of purpose and service. And then you kind of switch that or, you know, that's, that's kind of taken not taken from you, but it's a transition. And so that I was very lucky though, that I had a, a stable safety net and I had kind of help, you know, guardrails to, to help me when, um, when I, when I did transition out and became um, a military, was this, I was always a military spouse, but that became kind of my primary indicator. And my older son at the time, it was having trouble, um, needed speech therapy and occupational therapy and the school system, uh, just w- wasn't, I, you know, as helpful as I thought, you know, maybe that <laughs> we needed the help to access resources. And you, I had been told by some of the military spouses in there, they really seemed like they were, they would wait military families out because they know that, you know, you're so transient, they really can just kind of wait you out. And so I was trying to take data. I was trying to collect data to then give to um, military leadership and elected officials to say like, this is a, you know, an issue. And then it turned out, you know, we weren't actually residents of that state, of course, because if you're active duty, you know, or recently transitioning, you know, you're, you're, you don't have to be an act, you know, you can keep your state of residence. And then, so I, so I met other military families who were also just the, and by then, you know, we had been at war five years. Um, I mean, just the deployments, it was, it was, a, you know, post 9-11 is a different service. There were repeated deployments on families. The deployments were longer and they were, there were more of them. So it was a, total change in lifestyle and garden reservists. There's a total change in lifestyle. Um, and there was really, you know, some wear and tear on military families. And I was trying to create a kind of cohesive consolidated survey that would allow military families to give data points to elected officials and military leadership, regardless of your branch or your geography or your, you know, um, officer and enlisted, but just the actual experience of military families. So we could really create a sustainable all-volunteer force. And that really led to even a lot that came after it with even the way that we look at nurturing public service, can, you know, military families, like you mentioned, there's not, it's a very small, small population that serves. And then it tends to be the families of those who have already served because, you know, you do what you know. Uh, that's part of the reason why, why I joined. Um, and I would, even knowing though, the cost of service, which is very real. And I think even this, you know, past year has shown that. And this past month has really been an inflection point for some military families. I would still recommend service to my boys. And I think, um, I hope more families um, do. So we talk all the time about on this show about having that wow moment, right? That moment that kind of pivots you. And I feel like I just heard about five different wow moments in that story that you just told me around mental health and financial health and identity health and purpose. And so was all of this, maybe people don't know the story of Blue Star Families, but was did all of this lead to Blue Star Families? And talk a bit about what that is, because I think in some ways your wow moment took you to your next phase in your life, right? And so it pivoted you from feeling marginalized, coming out of active duty into struggling a bit, into then defining your own identity. And, and Vivian, my friend, that takes courage. So, you know, I love you all the more for that. But is that the story behind Blue Star? And what does Blue Star families do? I think, so 
Gosh, that's such a good, <laughs> Anita, your questions are so, I don't think I've ever heard that. Bad um, for a Friday. <laughs> right. Um, such a, such a direct line, but I, I think, yes, you're, yes, all of that does kind of, you know, every sailor needs a North star. There's another, there's another like wonderful piece of wisdom right there. Every, yeah, right. We all have our, our North star or your Sistine Chapel or your, you know, landing on the moon, whatever that is, I think for the Navy, we'll say North Star. And I think definitely the military, my military service, but also being part of a military family and loving someone, you know, who does serve and the sacrifices associated with that on, you know, your relationships, like you said, financial wellness, and, you know, it's, it's always hard when it, when you feel like it adversely affects relationships or children. Um, and that's why Blue Star, that's why we did start Blue Star Families was to create a support network to support, connect and empower military families to have a voice and, you know, to advocate for themselves and have a mechanism for feedback and also enjoy the ride because military, fam- you know, it can be, it can be. Um, and when, and when you have the support and you feel like the acknowledgement from, you know, resources and support pillars throughout the community and that everyone is that, you know, some gave all, all gave some, then that's where we get that sustainable all volunteer force that we really rely on um, as a country for national defense. And that did definitely, you know, but I think that's, it enlarges your military affiliation enlarges your life because you realize, I mean, for that wow moment, you realize how small you are in comparison to a totality, but that you still matter. Yeah. And that's, it's very, it's like, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, when he's like, you know, when I look at the stars, I feel very small, but I also feel very big to know that I'm part of something like this. And that's what I think, you know, the military affiliation has, has done for me. And I I definitely have put that into every, every system that I've been a part of since then kind of any kind of talk track, I can talk about the importance of service because of connectivity, because of meritocracy, um, because of the recognition that we're only successful, you know, if we're all successful. Well, and all of the lessons that you learn, all due respect to all my Ivy League friends, but if I were to just kind of doing check boxes next to professional development via the military. I mean, you're dealing with ambiguity, you're dealing with high-risk situations, you're dealing with, despite the North Star, limited, limited information and no money and speed. You've got to execute quickly or people can die literally. Teamwork, love, mission, purpose. I mean, all of that in my mind is everything that they don't teach you in school. So, uh, so if there are any more reasons to sell the military, I'm happy to, you know, write the handbook with you behind that. But I love the stories you tell about your mom and the influence. And I'm going to tell you, you inspired me with the story, but I won't steal the line. I will just say that I now carry a picture of my mom with me. But um, maybe um, talk about the story of your mom and how she influenced you. She was a police officer, right? When you talk about which, you know, your choices were the Navy or a police officer and neither one would have been bad, but maybe talk a bit about that. Right. I mean, she was one of the first women Capitol police officers. She also, you know, she spent some time in DC, came back to Atlanta and joined the um, Atlanta police force and certainly was, you know, one of the only women leaders. Um, And she actually still keeps in touch with, and I am, and I get to see them play out on Facebook, funnily enough, with several, with several of the other women who who came up with her in the um, Department of Corrections, Parole de- Department, and and police uh, um, here, force here in Atlanta. And so she definitely, the way that she looked at it was that those who came before her helped her get to where she was. And certainly I, I knew that I was able to even go to school on the HOPE scholarship because of sacrifices that she had made and that my grandparents had made, which at the time, you know, when someone tells you like, this is life changing to go to, you know, this first rate, you know, flagship university in, in the state. And as I got, went into the Navy and then um, started at Blue Stars, but um, very specifically when I transitioned into the corporate world. She really said to me um, early on, you know, you are going to be in rooms that I have have never been in. And I was in rooms because of people that weren't, you know, that helped me get in there. So I want you to take me into the rooms that you 
get in. And even back then I, I was like, I mean, I'm in the room, like why <laughs> you're in the room. It's kind of weird that I bring my mom to my meeting, but you know, now I, you know, I, I, as my boys have gotten older and I know that they have opportunities because of what my husband and I have done and they will be in rooms that I'll never be in. Um, and I say to them, you know, take me into the room with you. And it's just that code for really anyone who's not in the room, look around, see who's not there, whose voice is missing and represent them because, you know, you're, you're really holding a place for someone else always, right? Because power exists to expand power. Um, and so, I mean, I, I do, I do take her into the room with me always just as that little, you know, who, who's not in here, who, you know, who, what decisions are we making for groups of people that might have a different opinion um, and whose voice should we make room for? Because she certainly did a lot in to advance, you know, the cause when she was, was in the workforce. And I saw her choosing between, you know, PTA or, or staying after work to do an extra assignment to get ahead. Um, and then I, I did the same when I was in the Navy. And even now, my, you know, certainly um, my husband's done the same. And so, you know, just recognizing that people are more than just the position position that they are. And people have very full lives outside of whatever the thing is that we're doing together and, you know, give grace for that. Yeah. It reminds me of something that you said earlier in our conversation that inclusion is a choice. And I always talk about inclusion starting with I and this idea that you bring your mom in, but you bring her in because you're looking for the absence of voices and who needs to be included It's a pretty incredible, as simple as it sounds, a pretty incredible, powerful thing to say because it is a choice. And I think people get confused between diversity and inclusion. And I know you and I are both on the PwC meeting, which I missed today. But um, (laughs) did you miss too? I hope I did today. You know, today was a today was I had you. You were my. This is our own, this is our own, this is our own little DEI meeting, but I talk about, you know, ESG and financial inclusion. They really are just critical components of DEI. So how do you think about DEI at Fiserv and in your role? And how does all of that tie back into community engagement and social responsibility for you? And do you disagree? And it's okay to disagree. No, I love I love um, just kind of the way you so effortlessly bring those together and and thread that needle because it is it's it's about meaningful opportunity. You know, employment is more than a job. It's the recognition that you know people are you have to engage them holistically, whether you want them to work with you or buy from you or and but that's an evolving conversation. And I I as bad as twenty twenty was. I do think that it helped spur that conversation on a global level because it allowed us to be more vulnerable. We, you know, we were inside each other's houses. We, you know, kind of went through all of this together. So one, I just, you know, I want more conversations like these where you can talk about, you know, mental health with regards to ability to do your job or, you know, showing up at work, you know, being able to not, you know, being able to bring your full self. Or reducing obstacles or challenges for people to join your team, and then and then how that relates to ESG, because I do think for a very long time those were two very different. You know, ESG is investor relations, and it's really focused on shareholder value, uh, which and governance, governance, right? Which it's like table stakes, and then um, but there was a really great article in Forbes that um, I think it was about a week ago that um, Gene Case did on calling it ESGD, right? And I think, you know, for so long, if you were in social impact or diversity and inclusion, like you might be over here in talent acquisition or even a foundation had no engagement with maybe government relations or community affairs or operations. I mean, the, the really like the guts, the drivers of what your actual product service or is and so the closer that we can get those together recognizing that you know people can choose who to work for and buy from at any given time and you have to perform commensurate with what their expectations are and we know people's expectations are now you know kind of purpose and profit aligned and that you know you said uh, our stakeholder capitalism or conscious capitalism is coming together yeah 
And so it's a good time to be talking about yeah, it. It is. It's interesting too, because I've been, you know, writing pieces and arguing that long before there was ESG, there was DEI, and you really can't separate them. And if you do, then you're not doing well by either one of them. Right. And that's my, you know, and that's the whole reason that like the shift or the word, you know, the public disclosures and the frameworks around measurements, measurements, you know, ESG, they're, they're really, they, they, in most of the frameworks, they relegate the D the you know, diversity into this, just the social impact when really it has to do with environmental and governance, because there's, you know, benefits, policies, equal opportunity, you know, code of conducts, all of those things that play into much more into DNI than just you know your EEO one statement. And so I think you know I would I I like to see the I'm happy to see the evolution of more people talking about all of that together and in, in kind of a total employer value proposition format. Yeah, because in some ways, if you're part of ESG, even in and of itself, it sounds more important than the EI, right? That I'm leading the ESG framework and and we give lots of thought leadership papers to what is ESG, but diversity almost has been relegated in so many ways. It's never quite found its home as a chief diversity officer. And for a while it was in HR reported up to the CFO, which makes zero sense to me. God love all you CFOs, but it, but, but the CDOs need a seat at the table. And that's where I think we're starting to evolve to, which I'm with you. It's super exciting just to actually have the conversations. It's so refreshing, Vivian, because we haven't had them, right? We, there's, it's been that little group of us over here saying, oh, we should be doing this with DEI, right? And now it's like, no, this is a driver. Or go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was in it, you know, and CSR as a, you know, I always liked the term socialize responsibility and corporate social responsibility, you know, let's socialize the responsibility so that everybody equally feels responsible for, and it's the same with, you know, DEI, you can't have one person or, you know, and even culture, you can't have one person in charge of any one of those things, you know, to, to make or break it because you're trying to get into the system so that, if you disappeared tomorrow, the system that you set up would weigh out, you know, outlast any one person. So, yeah. Yeah, you're sounding like an anthropologist now, so you might be in trouble. Like one person does not define a culture. But it's, this is really good timing because two days ago, I had no idea who Ray Anderson is. And you you may or may not know, but there's this story of Interface here in Atlanta. And Interface is a flooring company, fascinating flooring company. And 30 years ago, their founder, CEO, uh, decided that he read a book and it hit him that he was a horrible capitalist and was destroying the environment. And he went to his company and said, we're going to we're going to flip everything we do and become good to the planet. And at first he tried to drive it through by himself to define this culture. And then what he did is he engaged everybody in the company to find the answers. So whether it was the machines they were using or the nylon they were using or the supply chain and there is this incredible story to be told, and it's in a documentary called Beyond Zero. Highly recommend it to everybody. But it, it comes back to this idea of inclusion. And, and he couldn't solve it himself, but he could solve it with all the voices and all the people. And I was so proud to be in Atlanta to hear you know, what the interface story was and how it was included. But they never talked about ESG or DEI, right? It was this broad cultural movement. And I think we could all learn a lot from that particular use case. So you and I have to go watch it together. And then we'll have another little chat about what we thought along the way. Amazing story. Let's let's flip back over to um, financial well-being because you said something about 2020 and coming out of 2020. I think, yeah, there was a you know, a big light on social injustice, but what happened? We're in fintech, we're in financial services, and the statistics are still pretty bad around 68% of all of our employees still being, you know, stressed about money. And 
70% of women lacking emergency funds and 60% of people of color lacking emergency funds and 60% of payday loans going to women. And, and, and I look at this and think as fintechs, we need to really lean in around this with solutions, but also in many ways, again, back to this idea of financial well-being being elevated on the DEI spectrum. And how do we bring that to bear in how we're shaping our products and how we're addressing our markets more than just thinking about how do we get more diversity on our own teams? What do we do to influence product development and influence how we serve our communities? And I'm wondering if you're wrestling with the same kinds of things that we are even at Salary Finance, where we, you know, we're creating these inclusive product sets, but it's still very difficult as a financial services organization because you want to be responsible and at the same time you you know you're inclusive but it's a combination of teaching and resilience and coaching and learning and product development and savings and borrowing and it's a very complex picture when you put it all together it is <laughs> i'm like and but what and what a time though to be alive and be able to and be in banking um because you can i i mean it's like you it's it's 50%, you know, it's glass, glass half empty, glass half full, or like, do you, but then you're like, you know, do some people don't have a glass? Um, and, but what can we do to, to help them? And I do think because of, you know, just the only thing that outpaces really the development of technology is the consumer's expectation of that technology. And so there's two things there. One is that we, so we actually have a huge opportunity to, as since we have broken down these systems and the way people are engaging and where they're purchasing um, and the groups that they're going through to access resources, we can build that back inherently more inclusive. And then the other role, the other important piece though, is that we don't, because we are so excited about digital and Omni and the ability for digital payments really to include people that have not been included, but not leave those behind who actually, you know, underbanked, unbanked, you know, my mom, a check writer, <laughs> those check writers out there. So, but it's really create an umbrella, a tent big enough for everybody to fit in so that we have this vibrant, inclusive economy, you know, global economy. And so we have, you know, looking at our offers and that's why, you know, with our back to business, when we made that original $10 million investment, we had such a great experience with the grant portion and with the community investment piece that we and our CEO improved the investment to 50 million, which because of the feedback from our partners, from our clients, from the small businesses, and, and the way that we looked at engaging not just the entrepreneurs, but the ecosystems that sustain them. So when you think of incubators, resource providers, aggregators, chambers of commerce that serve, you know, um, Black, minority, women, LGBTQ, veteran, disability and uh, for, for disability um, owned businesses, it's just create. It's you know. It's increasing the size of the pie. It's not increasing anyone's slice, but it's it's creating those those the wraparound, the you know technology. The hey, we're having a seminar on how to you know move from cash to to digital, or hey, we're having a seminar on cybersecurity because as much as as soon as you switch to online or start, you know, creating shopping carts where people can can buy online or pick up at the curb. You you know, there's a lot of people that are waiting for that to go wrong somehow. So how can you do it securely? If you're going to have a point of sale device, how do you do your inventory or how do you do that back of house thing so you can really focus on the thing that you love? And so and then also it's financial institutions, credit unions, community banks, minority deposit institutions and what is their role? How can we keep money and wealth in communities? So that they can, you know, everyone can have economic empowerment right where they are. And so we looked at, we, we've evolved even our strategy on national, or even if we think outside the U.S., how we engage with different regions based on that, you know, what is going on within that region. And if we look at the U.S., you know, national groups that have um, local presence. So whether it's like the African-American Credit Union Council or the Girl Scouts, right, they both increase access and awareness and education and talent pipelines 
that we want to be part of, or whether it's, you know, the hiring our heroes or, you know, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, uh, the um, Georgia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. We want to be where those businesses are because we can, you know, if you kind of pull the thread on employment or entrepreneurship or, you know, big companies, small companies, we can hire 10,000 people or we can help 10,000 small businesses survive and thrive. And then they will hire 10,000 people. 100,000, right? Uh, right. I mean, it's like when you think about it like that, then it's endless. And part of that comes with, I'll give you a challenge and then I want you to give me a challenge back so that we can challenge everybody on here. But I think part of it comes with the idea that, you know, in some ways we all get very myopic in our own world and focused on how do I get my market share and, you know, how's my product there? And, and so it, we tend even in financial services to be a bit fragmented and a bit myopic. And it's scary to think about collaboration or alliances because we would all be in some ways, um, certainly not comparing Savvy Finance, although one day we'll compete with Fiserv. But, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? We all have these sort of guards up. And I think if we could break down some of the guards and find ways to collaborate and remove some of the fragmentation, particularly around supporting small businesses and supporting vulnerable um, communities and and communities and businesses and vulnerable employees, we could do a better job with it. Then I would offer the challenge to the larger fintechs to work with organizations like ours that have a few hundred people, but we're servicing and we're servicing 4 million people where you're doing a bazillion people. <laughs> I, uh, there, there have to be ways, there have to be bridges, there have to be pathways through which we could find a way to collaborate. So I, I, I would offer that there need to be fine ways. We need to find ways to work together around these things. Just like you and I have these conversations, there are ways I believe that we could remove those barriers. But part of this series of people on purpose and working on well-being, uh, you know, what should we be doing? What what challenge would you offer us and our listeners to think about for you know the the next year? Leave us with a challenge. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I would go back to that any definition of success has to include service, right? I mean, and I know <laughs> whether public, private, you know, nonprofit, personal, professional. So think about how you serve someone today, even in, in pursuit of your job or career, or just helped a neighbor or someone else using whatever talent that you have. And I know that sounds, it could sound, you know, I don't know, a hokey. It sounds, I don't amazing. Know. <laughs> no, it sounds amazing. But I do, I think that the, the return on, you know, impact um, or return on inclusion that we talked about, in, in addition to the return on investment really is when we get in a service mindset, because any good leader that, you know, I've ever worked for has always come back to service and a, a servant leadership. So it's, you know, serving your team that you work with, so that you can have a good team that reacts well to client queries and has, you know, so you can delight the client, so you can retain the client, so you can serve the client. And so I, you know, I, I do think it comes back to some kind of inclusion of service to be successful. So I guess the challenge from that is, you know, think of who you have served today and maybe, you know, just as an extra bonus outside of whatever drives your revenue immediately, because I do think it, that is that stakeholder engagement, that long-term, you know, generational impact that when we build more inclusive systems because of a sense of service that we do yield the benefits. I'm going to go straight away and get rid of return on investment and make it return on service, Vivian. So it seems like you defined a new KPI there. <laughs> Great. Now I have to track it. Yes, now you have to track it. Me too. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I just I want to thank you for your military service first and foremost, and your commitment to our country, uh, your authentic leadership. And you know, speaking of moms, my mom always said, "Good people do things when nobody is looking." And I think that kind of sums up who you are too. So I'm really grateful that you spent time with me today, and thank you so much for being on. 
Oh, and Nita, I, you know, mutual admiration club because you constantly create space to talk about things um, that are important to, to everyone. And you do it through our, um, you know, the CEO action group and through the ATPC and, you know, just in the spaces you're in. So, you know, thank you too. We're better together. Maybe that's where I should leave it. So everyone, thank you today for listening. And until next time, just keep working on well-being. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.